Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Warmth by Daniel Sherrill. The subtitle, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. And this is from the first chapter's title, Correspondence. On April 14th, 2018, a civil rights lawyer named David Buckle burned himself alive in Prospect Park. He did it alone, just before sunrise, a brief illumination on a peripheral lawn. A cyclist found his body in a circle of char, though she had to pass by several times to be sure of what she'd seen. Later, she told reporters, it was hard to make myself believe it. The suicide was well-planned, even courteous. Buckle had cleared a ring of dirt around himself to keep the flames from spreading. I apologize to you for the mess, read a note found by the police in a shopping cart next to the scene. A long letter had already been emailed out to the press. This was, quote, an early death by fossil fuel, it read. It reflects what we are doing to ourselves. I spent most of that day across town in Central Park. I remember it was gorgeous outside and the lakes were all crowded with rowboats, little schools of them flitting back and forth behind the curtain of the willows. I found a perch on top of a small hill and watched the road loop swell with people. Somewhere out of sight, a stoplight was releasing them in pulses. The tourists in their carriages, the cyclists, the loping rollerbladers. They passed quickly and suddenly, then a beat of empty road, and then the unseen light changed once more, presumably, and the next wave came streaming past. The scene reminded me of a Bruegel painting I'd come across in a history textbook, a landscape of a village in winter painted from atop a nearby hill. In it, you can see hunters and woodcutters going about their business, ice skaters crisscrossing a pond, chimneys smoking in snow. According to the textbook, this painting was meant somehow to delineate the beginning of the Renaissance, as if all it took was a small vantage, the right flow of people, to funnel the whole historical watershed. After a while, I fell asleep in the grass, and when I woke up, the temperature had dropped and the picnics dissipated. The few people still out seemed in a hurry to get home. I walked back through the park toward the east side, past the closing museums, past the expensive boutiques that mimic the museums, single handbags underlit in glass display cases, and down the stairs to the train, which I took back to the Bronx. It was only once I stepped into my darkened apartment that I saw the news from Prospect Park, glancing past it on my phone and then scrolling back up, registering what I had read. 
What struck me even more than the tragedy, and it did strike me, a slow onset, so that I failed to make dinner that night and eventually, at a loss for what to do, I finally tore myself from the screen, went to bed without ever having turned on the lights, was how quickly this event, this flicker of violence, was subsumed once more into the general mill of the park, was forgotten, essentially. Beyond the cordon of police tape, the newspapers reported, the barbecues continued as normal, the corporate kickball games resumed. Participants in a charity walk strode industriously by in matching purple t-shirts, which predicted in cursive quotes that an end to pancreatic cancer was at hand. Wage hope, the shirts read. The movement had rolled on, in other words. And I'm only being partially rhetorical when I ask you, what else could it possibly have done? Afterward, I felt irrationally like I should have been able to detect some ripple when it happened, a subtle shock wave passing from his park to mine, like a bell tolled to part one hour from the next. Undoubtedly, the news alerts had been piling up in my pocket, but I'd set my phone on silent and so hadn't even felt those regular vibrations I'd grown accustomed to associating with tragedy. While a man burned, the flames carbonizing his skin, then evaporating his blood, I hadn't felt a thing. It had been a beautiful day, and as I said, I spent much of it asleep. Several days after the immolation, I took an afternoon walk with my mother. We were strolling in circles around a smaller park near my apartment, a third park, St. Mary's, this one less manicured than the other two. The cracked paths bristled with weeds that had sprouted eagerly at that first whisper of spring and then died once again in the ensuing cold snap. They looked brittle now, almost burnt. Apropos of very little, I told her about the suicide and how sad I was about it, which was not in that moment entirely true. In fact, I was often pathologically adaptive to news about the problem, and that morning had woken up feeling completely fine, no longer able to access the pain I'd felt just days ago, like I'd stepped out of a room and had a lock behind me. My hope was that invoking the word sadness would somehow resurrect the emotion for us both that I could cast the word like a spell and have it conjure between us an instant commiseration, obviating language altogether, which often struck me as plainly inadequate to any real consideration of the problem. He always capitalizes the word problem, by the way. Though when this didn't work, and it never did, I'd fall back on the usual bromides, letting them lamely drop into conversation. I feel overwhelmed, is what I said on this particular occasion. It's such a tragedy that everyone's already forgotten. It was true, the news cycle had moved inexorably forward, though I still had a few emails at the bottom of my inbox with subject lines like rest in peace, or in some cases, forward, regarding rest in peace. The book by Daniel Sherrill is titled Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The line with us, our old friend Jason Box, Dr. Jason Box, a professor of glaciology at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, the author of a forthcoming new book, Faster Than Forecast. YouTube is Jason Box Climate, and on Twitter, climate underscore ice. Jason, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. In fact, I'm pretty sure we haven't had any climate scientists on since COP26. I would love to do a kind of a recap with you about what's going on 
on the planet, and I think we all know how disastrous COP was. But welcome back, and, and what are your thoughts? Where are we at right now? Well, one of the things we looked at was the COPS 26 scenario in terms of sea level rise. And unfortunately, the expected sea rise on the commitments made at COP26 is well above the kinds of scenarios that planners appear to be working with. There seems to be a, a filter that we're not getting through to politicians and even coastal planners that we need to prepare for massive and expensive sea rise on the medium to longer term. Medium to longer term meaning what? 30 years, 50 years, well, 100 years? Well, it's already becoming a nuisance and an expensive problem in like Florida where the bedrock is porous and there's nothing, you, can, you can't build walls. Uh, but I think about a lot more immediate problems with climate than sea rise. Uh, problems of the loss of food and water security that are connected to the warming in the Arctic, which we're finding is happening more than three times as fast as the globe. And the rate that the Arctic is warming is actually increasingly outpacing global warming. So I just found out that we're looking, we punched above 4x global if you measure from 2005 forward. So how you measure Arctic amplification depends on, you know, the, the, the time period that you're looking at. We noticed that there was a big bump up of Arctic warming after 2005. And a number of studies are pinning that on an increase in uh, winter warm events. So we know what's happening in the Arctic and it is connected with the rest of the world. Jason, there was a, a piece in the New York Times last week where they made a map of North America and they showed with red dots where there were unusual heat events last year in 2021 and it with blue dots where there were unusual cold events. And it was fascinating because the unusual heat events, I mean, here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, we had 116 degree temperatures Fahrenheit for three days in a row. It was insane. It never before be seen. People dying up and down the West Coast. And then, of course, forest fires and things like that. So the whole West Coast had all these bright red dots, particularly the Northwest. And then the blue dots were all across the central United States on the east side of the Rockies, particularly down into Texas, where, you know, we got freezing temperatures that sent Ted Cruz fleeing to Cancun. It looked to me like one of those, almost like the meteorological patterns where you see the Gulf Stream when the Gulf Stream kind of collapses and just drools down the, the east side of the Rockies, you know, and it, it stalls out west of the Rockies and drools that way down east of the Rockies and allows Arctic air to come down behind it. Is that what I was seeing? Are we watching in real time as the jet stream is weakening and possibly collapsing? And if so, what would the outcome of that be? Yeah, I call that a signature of Arctic climate change. That is precisely the connection of the Arctic warming faster than the rest of the globe. It's resulting in more stationary wave patterns in the atmosphere. And we started to see those, uh, I remember 2010, 11, 12, the Eastern US was in a kind of an ice age while the Western US was high and dry. And that pattern seems to be more recurrent. The deep excursions of the jet stream that brought the record cold to Texas, the surprising events 
are not that surprising when you study the number of waves that occur in the, this planetary vortex. The fact is, wave numbers are increasing, or the stationarity of those patterns is increasing, and that's when we get not only hot and cold, but extremes of wet and dry. So as, as one of the world's leading climate scientists, Dr. Jason Box, how do you see this playing out? I mean, you mentioned sea level rise. It's going to get more radical as we come along. We're seeing people being wiped out, you know, tornadoes, derechos, something I wasn't even part of my vocabulary until last year, a mile wide tornadoes uh, going across the Midwest. How rapidly is this going to continue to intensify or has it hit a plateau that it'll probably stay at for a few years or a while? And if it does intensify these these kinds of extreme weather events whether it's 116 degree summers in portland or minus 10 degree winters in on the mexican border how does it play out i mean what should we be expecting how bad is it going to get and how quickly is it going to get that bad unfortunately the baseline keeps shifting so i don't think that we're reaching any plateaus this concept of the new normal is a distraction from the transient changes that are happening. It's not a new normal that obscures the fact that we continue trending out of a stable climate. What we need to do is reduce carbon emissions and get into pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. It's a enormous, colossal project. But, but the, even just getting started on that starts to put the brakes on this catastrophe. That really should be uh, one of the central organizing principles of governments around the world, because we need the high-level policy. The, the individuals can only do so much, and, and as someone else put it, you know, short showers aren't going to get us there. We need really strong policy, and, and I would argue to uh, redirect the militaries of the world to planting forests and safeguarding from the destruction of, of ecosystems. There, there are things that we can do about this. We need to really get into it. You and I had a conversation a couple of years ago about the consequences of large quantities of methane being mobilized, whether it's uh, methane clathrates frozen around the seacoasts of uh, all of our continents, around the coastal lines of all of our continents, or whether it's uh, peat and uh, you know, uh, northern forests that have been frozen since the last ice age. Uh, any updates on that? Where are we at? Is this still a concern, or was that uh, at that the time that that we were discussing that a few years ago, were we being overwrought? Well, it's come more into focus our abrupt permafrost processes. It's easy enough to measure uh, gradual changes in permafrost temperature. The borehole temperature records, they do indicate clear pattern of warming, but it's these abrupt processes that is an increasing number of examples. For example, when water floods permafrost, you can get so-called thermokarst features. These are like landslides on a flat surface, an opening up of the tundra. The concern about the methane release from the land and also the ocean hasn't gone away. Well, the ocean still remains a, a big, scary wild card, but the land is clearly indicating it's coming. It's a more dynamic permafrost. That's one-fifth of the land surface of planet Earth is permafrost, and it has uh, hundreds of gigatons of, of carbon in it. So 
as I've said in the past, you know, even if a small fraction of this stuff comes out, we're in deep doo-doo. Yeah, yeah. Were you at COP26 or did you just watch it from the sidelines like most of us did? Yeah, I, I did go and I, I fell into this trap of, you know, I was expecting more out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really was, you know, because the pressure had never been higher. The, the rhetoric was all there, but there wasn't much substance. There wasn't really any substance. It, it was hollow. So it was really disappointing. And and for all of the young people that have been having an impact from this youth-led Fridays for Future movement, they learned from that that they're unable to count on that kind of class of leadership. Uh, The leadership that we seem to need, evidently, has to come from somewhere else. Yeah, the the youth-led movement is uh, one source of hope. Yeah, I think, you know, the Sunrise Movement and the, and the groups associated with it, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, are driving this, frankly. These old neoliberal politicians are just flailing. We have about 45 seconds left, Dr. Jason Box. Where would you encourage people to focus their activism? We need leaders that take the threat more seriously than the ones that we have. The denial is that we see even among the Democrats in the U.S. is uh, really alarming. The How to get true to Republicans, I think they need to understand what truly is at risk. They appear to be in a, in a fantasy or, or a very cynical political corner that they don't seem to realize uh, really what's at stake here. Yeah, yeah. So politics actually is what it comes down to. Dr. Jason Box, professor of glaciology at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, coming into us live from Europe. The author of a, a new book, Faster Than Forecast. Keep an eye out for this. We'll get you back on when, it, when it's out. Jason Box, Climate over on YouTube and Climate underscore Ice on Twitter. Jason, thanks for dropping by. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Does Arctic drilling violate human rights? Frode Plime is on the line with us, an activist and senior advisor and leader of Greenpeace Norway. Zooming in from Norway, greenpeace.org slash Norway is the website. Frode Plime is the Twitter handle, F-R-O-D-E-P-L-E-Y-M, or Greenpeace Norge, N-O-R-G-E. Frodo, welcome to the program. Tell us about where did all this start? This has to do, I believe, with Article 112 of the Norwegian Constitution? Yes. This all started off with, you as an American would think about Norway as a country with strong green credentials. More than half the cars sold in Norway last year was electrical vehicles. That compares to two or maybe three percent in, in the U.S. Nearly all of our electricity is derived from renewable sources. Wow. Yet, in contrast, Norway is the biggest fossil fuel producer and exporter in Western Europe. We have become filthy rich from contributing to global warming. As everybody is aware now, and the listeners to your show, all the scientists of the world are crystal clear. Like, we need to leave new oil, gas, and coal in the ground. Norway is doing the opposite. We are a government awarding hundreds of new licenses for oil drilling, including in the Arctic. Greenpeace in Norway is like working politically, we are writing reports, they're working with scientists to influence and confront the government. But they have for years been ignoring the calls from the scientists, the environmental movement and, and young people. And this this is the reason we took Norway initially the domestic legal system back in 2016. It seems in many ways a, a classic story of how self-interest, uh, in this case money, gets sadly balanced against the public interest in ways that causes the public interest to lose out. I mean, is, is Norway giving out these licenses, you know, these any more oil drilling and things, how does that play in the political landscape in Norway? I mean, everybody loves the fact that the country is very wealthy, free health care, great education, good colleges. I've spent a fair amount of time in Norway in the last decade. It's just an absolutely wonderful place to be and to live. And my grandfather and grandmother, in fact, came from Norway. So at what point are people saying, okay, we've got, you know, billions or trillions of dollars in the Norwegian fund from selling oil. That's enough. We can just live off that. Versus B, uh, we don't have enough money. We need to get more. We need to drill for more oil. How is that playing out at the level, of, uh, at the political level in Norway? I think what people need to understand is that to most Norwegians, we are interconnected with oil. The Norwegian welfare system was built with the support of oil. We have, we have so much to thank oil for. And to venture into the great unknown, like going from oil to renewables, that's a big leap. For most Norwegians, since oil has been, for decades been giving us so much safety, and as you mentioned, the, the sovereign wealth fund of, of Norway being being built on the basis of oil. The last few years, in part because of this climate trial, now headed for European Court of Human Rights, but very much because of young people on the, on the streets like across the world, in the US, in Norway, like taking to the streets, the public discourse and the political discourse, even in Norway, has started to slowly change. But 
the politicians from the major political parties, they're not catching up with this. So it's not an ideal situation to face the Norwegian government in the legal system, be it in Norway or not potentially at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. It really is a case of, of David versus Goliath. Mm-hmm. But we have no choice. The politicians yeah. are not listening. So that's why we need to pressure them to, to heed scientific advice. So the European Court of Human Rights is based in Strasbourg, France. This is the court. It's part of the Council of Europe. Norway is one of its 47 members. This is the court where you are trying to litigate this on the basis that Norway, by expanding drilling at the very least, and tell me if, if you're also arguing by continuing to draw oil out of the ground, is actually violating the human rights of Norwegians or of people around the world? Yes, that's right. We are arguing it's in effect in breach of the European Convention of Human Rights to which this court is, is responsible for. We might face a loss in the European Court of Human Rights as well. But what has been very important to see in the Norwegian public discourse and the political debate of the past few years, and it has been through the legal system in Norway, is that even though we lost in the district court, in the city court, one year ago in the Supreme Court, the debate that ensued, just like with protesters out in the streets, like really is changing the opinion of people. And ultimately, that is what will force the politicians to change. So us getting this far, even with the European Court of Human Rights, like is a win. Should we actually win in the European Court of Human Rights? Then Norway has no formal obligation to follow the ruling for the European Court of Human Rights. It's not legally binding. But should we win and Norway ignore the ruling from the European Court of Human Rights? I bet you that the countries of the world, like looking at Norway and their green credential in theory, but not in practice, will apply much more pressure on Norway. And oil-producing nations and big oil corporations around the world are watching this case. This is the first major international case against an oil-producing nation. This, This changes the dialogue. I understand the court has given the Norwegian government until April 13th to comment. Typically, these processes take six years, but it looks like they're going to expedite this? It looks like it will go much, much faster. It, it might still take a couple of years. We're hoping for, for even faster. But mm-hmm. what we're faced with in, in Norway, just like in the U.S., just like in the global south, is that this action we are requesting now with the legal system, it should have happened yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and it's not happening because of the power uh, that be, be it politicians or, or corporations. And what we need to continue to do is the uprising on the streets. We need to pressure our politicians at big international meetings. And we need to pressure them at home in Washington, D.C., or in Oslo, or in Manila, or wherever, because the politicians will not act without... (laughs) Politicians, whether they're Norwegian, American, or whatever, very rarely lead movements. They jump in front of movements that are already going and hoist a flag and say, this is my movement. But they very rarely start them. We're talking with Freddy Fleim, who is the uh, senior advisor and leader of Greenpeace Norway, uh, greenpeace.org slash Norway. Did I hear you correctly say that 100% of the energy or the electricity now used in Norway is generated by sustainable sources, renewable sources? Yeah, like close to one of the percent and like over half of the electrical cars. And I think what this shows is change is possible. What the U.S. and Norway and, and the major like fossil using and producing nations of the world need to realize is that they also need to grab the elephant in the room, which is us, the rich countries, being responsible for climate change predominantly affecting the global south and be 
the advocate for change and be the change that the world so desperately Oh yeah, and be the example of change. So how did you all do this? How, how did Norway become 100% sustainable electrically? And this time of year, you guys have only a few hours a day of sunlight, or at least in the northern parts of the country. <laughs> is it solar? Is it wind? Is it geothermal? I mean, what's the combination that, are you using nuclear? Do you consider that green? I, you know, I know there's a, a huge debate around that. I'm inclined not to think of it as green, but how has Norway done this? Nuclear to, to us is not green. Like the, the major energy source is actually hydroelectric plants. Um, ah, uh, they the are fjords. not always green, but they were built like decades ago. But the major change due to political action has been on increasing the proportion of electrical like, like vehicles. And this really shows that when, when people apply the pressure and the politicians follow suit, it doesn't have to be in the past. We don't have to have a fossil fuel powered like fleet of vehicles. It could be electricals. And the same goes for the U.S., Norway, other countries currently being responsible and uh, dependent on fossil fuels. It yeah. does not have to be. Well, like it's, it's, is it uh, not going power, to be illegal, illegal in Norway after 2024 to sell a car that's powered by fossil fuels? Exactly. And, and that might seem like a far stretch, like impossible at the moment when it comes to the U.S. But the Norwegian example uh, that had also close to 100% of fossil fuel cars really shows that change is possible. In two years, <laughs> in just two years. I mean, you guys are way ahead of everybody. And Greenpeace Norway has played a huge role in this. You're doing God's work. I mean, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary and wonderful what you're doing. Frode Plem, the activist senior advisor, the leader of Greenpeace Norway, greenpeace.org slash Norway, F-R-O-D-E-P-L-E-Y-M on Twitter. Frode, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Zeke in Portland. Hey, Zeke, what's on your mind today? What's happening right now in the states of Idaho and Montana is obscene. Gray wolves are being lured out of the National Park, Yellowstone National Park, with bait in the dead of winter to be shot to death and worse, strangled to death by snares, by neck snares, by stinking, puking rednecks in those states. This is happening because... It's happening because Biden and his Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, are maintaining the delisting of the gray wolf that was accomplished by Trump at a certain point in his uh, putrid administration. They are maintaining the delisting of the gray wolf. And I am appealing to you and your listeners, contact your elected representatives in in the House. Go to their websites. Let them know that you want them to speak out against this. Putting the gray wolf back, back on the endangered species list. Yes. I'm on it, Zeke. If you've sensitized me to the issue, thank you. I'll, I'll start looking for stories about it. And things. So Zeke, thank you very much. Grim stuff. This is absolutely fascinating. For those of you who are having the thermostat wars, huh? <laughs> maybe it's time to reconsider. This is from Wired.com. It's by Max Levy. It's titled, Could Cold Be Actually Good For You? It's about a group of scientists who are studying, Francois Hamon, specifically a French guy, studying 
Uh, what happens when we're exposed to extreme cold? In this case, uh, 44 degrees Fahrenheit for 24 hours. And he says, before industrialization, these extremes were actually part of life. Bodies dealt with cold in the winter, heat in the summer. You kept going back and forth and back and forth. And this actually contributed, he believes, to metabolic health. And it turns out that there's two pieces to this, that when you expose yourself regularly to cold, it causes your body to store something called brown fat, which uh, unlike white fat, which is the normal fat that we have under our skin, brown fat mostly surrounds our organs. It's internal, it's deeper. Brown fat um, converts to heat really, really fast and regulates our metabolism and also reduces our problems with metabolizing insulin. Whereas white fat does kind of the opposite. So number one, they had this, uh, this, this guy showers every day with a cold bath or a shower. He says it's a rush. It releases all these hormones called catecholamines. And he says, oh my God, I'm feeling so strong and I'm awake. This is my kind of coffee. So in 2013, he did this study where he had people wear cold suits and it caused people to double the amount of brown fat, which uh, you know, around their spinal column, adrenal glands and pelvic muscles. And it replaced shivering. People stopped shivering when they had the brown fat. A shivering decreased by up to 20%. Then they did another study where they put people in 58 degree Fahrenheit water up to their clavicles for an hour, up to their neck for an hour. After seven days, he says, you are basically a different person. They would shiver 36% less intensely on average. They've done rodent studies now. They found that uh, brown fat's presence is linked to leanness and normal blood sugar. And uh, a diabetes researcher, uh, Joris Hooks at uh, Maastricht University in the Netherlands, has been looking into people with type 2 diabetes with cold acclimation. He has them endure six hours of cold right up to the edge of shivering for 10 days. Their blood glucose improved by 43% on average. That's the same improvement you would see after a 12-week exercise regimen. And muscle cells also change. So apparently getting cold is good for you. I still like to keep the temperature a little warmer. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. Patreon page. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion 
while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Jim in Vita, Montana. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. Say, are you familiar with our governor here in Montana, Gianforte? Uh, yeah, well, I, I remember when he was threatening a reporter. That yeah, was his moment body, of fame. Yeah, he's the body slammer, but yeah. um, he's also a wolf trapper. And he trapped, oh, uh, trapped or snared a wolf last year north of Yellowstone on a ranch owned by Sinclair Broadcasting. And oh. he didn't even have a proper license because he, he has to take a, um, a course in order to trap wolves, and he didn't take it. He said he didn't need it. He knew all about it, and they gave him a warning. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, and um, you asked about how the politicians feel about the wolves. Well, they're, he's 100%. He wants them all wiped out. And then uh, on another note related, um, Rupert Murdoch just bought a 500-square-mile and, I mean, that's huge, even for out here. A 500-square-mile ranch just west of Yellowstone, Rupert Murdoch. And he bought it from the Koch brothers. Wow. Oh, that's a cattle operation. That's a huge cattle operation. Sure, yeah. sure. Amazing. So, so yeah, don't, that's a report. Yeah. yeah, so don't expect Fox News to get on, the, uh, on, on this case either. <laughs> I got it. Jim, thank you very much for the call. And thanks for the report from Montana. I appreciate it. James in Spokane. Hey, James, what's up? Let me say first in defense of life and happening a pain on this planet, we lose sight of the fact that you don't too much because you're vegan. But otherwise, we consume a lot of meat in this country. And all those animals are tortured from birth to death. It breaks my heart. Hundreds of millions of animals every year to feed us. If they were raised wholesomely and killed wholesomely, that would be fine. They're tortured from birth to death. It breaks my heart. It just it, it crushes me. But uh, on to... What's going on with the Democrats? They're ineffective because basically we're all neurotic. You know, we self-educated out of the jungle, and there's a lot of greed involved with that for the reasons we've talked about and discussed. But basically, the Democrats right now are making money off of the gravy train, and it's not really a conscious effort on their part, just unconsciously and subconsciously. The fact of the matter is that were it not for two bought-off senators in the United States Senate, Joe, Man- Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the, the Democratic Party would have done some really spectacular stuff this year. They would have done essentially a major reinvention of America, a reboot of the New Deal. And it would have had extraordinary and powerful transformation of the United States. It may still happen, but I'm not holding my breath. I think that we're going to have to pick up a couple more senators in the election this November. And I think that's possible. The problem is, will we lose the House, which would eliminate the possibility of passing any legislation? We'll see. But I'm not ready to, to blame Democrats for this. I'm, I'm sorry. Respectfully, I disagree. Deborah in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey, Deborah, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to talk about the man who called in about the wolves, Montana and Idaho, that are being killed. Yeah. There's a place you can go to for that. There are many things we can do to stop this, hopefully. 
It's called uh, relistwolves.org. You can go there. Or just Google Relist Wolves, and it will bring up all kinds of places you can go to. You can comment on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife page. The best thing to do, I think, would be to write to President Biden and Secretary Howland, because I thought he would probably reverse a lot of these things that Trump did. And this is really important. Wolves are a very important part of the ecosystem, and we almost wiped them out once, and this is wiping them out again. They really are a very important part. It's like sharks. If you kill all the sharks in the ocean, you just upset the entire ecosystem. And I know ranchers say that they have to kill them because they're... Eating cows. Killing their cattle and that sort of thing. But there are many things that ranchers can do short of killing a wolf to deter them. There are plenty of dogs that are trained to do that. There are also people you can hire to run the pack off or any wolf off or mountain lions or whatever. I mean, if you ever watch Mountain Men on uh, the History Channel, guy on there that does that. I mean, it's there's so many things you can do short of killing these beautiful animals. Yeah, wolves so, are apex yeah. predators and predators that generally don't have other predators, and as are right. we. And so basically, what we are is in comp. You know, this is a competition between apex predators. And uh, we're turning it into not only an unfair competition, but one that's actually destructive to our ecosystems. And that's not a good thing, you know, uh, even setting aside the moral issues, you know, uh, uh, you know, killing sentient beings, which I don't think you could set aside. But I mean, if you want to just make a purely unemotional scientific effort. Deborah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Charles in Portland. Hey, Charles, what's up? Well, I, it was just a little thing, but um, you mentioned planned obsolescence, and mm-hmm. we've run into that at Tom Dwyer's, where somebody was asking about what happened to all the cars in the 70s where they were all planned obsolescence. We were talking about uh, the design life of a part, and that still goes on. You know, I mean, if you're designing, let's say, a tool that has to last, you know, one year in lightweight conditions versus five years in heavier conditions, you design the part differently. And that's not necessarily planned obsolescence, but that goes on. People have to think about hmm. how long the car is going to last or their tool or their dishwasher. And the, the manufacturers can't, you know, if the part naturally lasts 10 years and you say, okay, I bet I can make it fail in five years, that's wrong. But, you know, not everything lasts forever. And so there's... Sure. There's a little bit of intent in the uh, the manufacturers. It's not all just that they're trying to. That's, that's fascinating. Well, Charles, you you work at at Tom Dwyer Automotive here in Portland, Oregon, which is in my experience all ever all my years on the planet. The, the, you guys have the most high integrity, high quality, fast turnaround, do the right thing automotive repair shop that I've ever experienced. And I've lived in five states. So I just, I want to tip my hat to you. And as somebody who understands this and who's in the business, do you have any thoughts on which brands of, if, you know, if somebody's thinking about getting a, a new car that might be, a, you know, an electric car, or, uh, any suggestions? We recommend anybody buy a Toyota or a Honda and take care of it. And it's going to last them for years, if not decades. And until the full electrics come out, which they're, they're getting closer, Mm-hmm. Tom's advice is buy a Corolla and keep it up, and it's going to be environmentally competitive, fuel-efficiently competitive with a hybrid. The electric, that's a different deal, and we're waiting on that. But right now, it's Toyota, Honda. Then uh, there's a jump to uh, other Asian manufacturers in America, and then you never buy anything from Europe. 
Oh, interesting. We have European techs who won't work on a European car. I mean, they won't own European cars. They'll work on them all day. Huh. Fascinating. Charles, thanks for the call. <laughs> and and, and thank you so much. Always and say hi to Tom Dwyer for me. Larry in Elkhart, Kansas. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Fact. Nothing is as important as stopping the rampant destruction of our biosystems, in my opinion. I'm with you. And quick quote from The Guardian. Robert Walker, a quantitative geographer at the University of Florida's Center for Latin American Studies, has said that unless something unprecedented happens, he predicts that the great rainforest, the greatest rainforest on Earth, Amazonian rainforest, will be wiped out by 2064. That is wild. That is nuts. That is scary. That yeah, it's is losing crazy. something like 80,000 acres a day. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how yeah, rapidly it's going. In the article, they said, excuse me, I'm sorry. In the article, they said 200,000. 200, yeah, okay. Yeah. May well be. May well be. I'm running from memory here. But it's huge. Point is, who is going to do something about that? I mean, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, Everyone's this, enraged at people who... No, Jair Bolsonaro, you know, the Trumpy president of Brazil has been giving away rainforest to his big donors for them to go in and turn it into agricultural land or to drill for oil, you know, wiping out indigenous people, destroying biosphere. He claims that climate change is a hoax, just like Viktor Orban of Hungary, you know, who says climate change is a hoax manufactured by Barack Obama. I'm with you, Larry. We have to do something. The question is, what? how do you most effectively act? And I think that we have to understand that the mechanism by which we act is important as well as what we do. And that, in my mind, that mechanism should be democracy. That, you know, we as a people should say, okay, we're going to do something about this and collectively, and we should, you know, discuss it and debate it honestly. But our democracy right now, because the Supreme Court has allowed the fossil fuel industry to own politicians like Joe Manchin, our democracy is not working. And therefore, our ability to do something about global warming is not working. And our ability to do anything about what's going on in Brazil is, is pretty much non-existent. You know, you would hope that the U.N. would do something about that. But I'm with you. I'm very concerned about it. I don't have an easy answer. Tom in Marquette, Michigan. Hey, Tom, what's up? We in Michigan here are concerned about two anchor strikes of the Line 5 pipeline near the Mackinac Bridge. I was a paper boy in Royal Oak, Michigan, and when uh, John Kennedy was assassinated. And it struck me as odd that one in the afternoon we hear of the news of John Kennedy's assassination, and I'm the paper boy for the Detroit News, mainly taking the, delivering the newspapers at 4 and 5 and 6 o'clock, saying, lone gunman kills president. What I'm bringing up is something that's related to oil spill in California. It seems like the initial call on how much oil was leaked out of the pipes was impossible to estimate. They said two different reports. One was there's a 13-inch hole in the pipe, and the other one said there's a 13-inch pole stretching 1,000 feet. It was a 13-inch pipe, wasn't it? I mean, that's where the 13-inch No, 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 it's a 13-inch hole. No, it's a 13-inch hole. And so they covered up how big the hole is by saying, well, it's only a 13-inch hole. Well, if it spans 1,000 feet, we're talking about hundreds of square feet of breakage. And so the initial, my concern is that the initial reports, like with the Kennedy assassination, here we are 50 years later, and it's still, well, lone lone gunman killed the president, and he was a communist. And, you know, whatever we hear first seems to stick in our craw. 
Sure. Or in and, our memory. Yeah, so your point is that you think that the California oil spill, I didn't know that there was an oil spill up in the in the Mackinac Straits from No, there wasn't strikes. a spill. There was two, two anchor strikes. But the pipeline's held? That's correct. Well, that's sort of good news, but you know, just the fact that <laughs> just, just the yeah. fact that we've got pipelines running, you know, through the Great Lakes, uh, you know, the largest freshwater body of uh, largest body of freshwater on Earth is yeah. uh, something, that, something I learned about that location of that pipeline is that, and I didn't know before, was that the water flows through from Lake Michigan underneath the Mackinac Bridge to Lake Huron, typically. Right. But when levels are different, it can actually flow back the other way. Correct. And so that pipeline was laid on the bottom, just like the one that in California is laid on the bottom. And eventually, they realized that the water washing back and forth was scouring underneath it, creating gaps in the bottom or the support from the bottom. So they put in anchors, little bridges that held up and supported the uh, span in the mm -hmm. middle of the straits there. Mm -hmm. And so my concern is, is, and I'd like to say to everybody that's listening, electric is coming, and we're fighting against oil companies whose costs get passed on to the consumers. Yeah, These absolutely. Costs for this cleanup I don't, I don't understand why they didn't just build that pipeline as something that hangs off the bottom of the Mackinac Bridge or the side of the Mackinac Bridge. Well, I did too. I wondered the same thing. But uh, I mean, that way, if there was yeah, any kind of leak, you'd know it immediately. No, yeah, that's right. I just want everybody to know electric is coming. We have to push for it. There you go. I'm with you, Tom. Tom, thank you very much for the call. Thanks for watching us in uh, Marquette on Facebook Live. I, I do appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Climate Chaos, Lessons on Survival from Our Ancestors by Brian Fagan and Nadia Durrani. This is from the preface. The people of the past have bequeathed us priceless lessons about adapting to climate change. But first, the fundamental point. We are human beings, just like our forebears, and have inherited the same brilliant qualities of forward thinking, planning, innovation, and cooperation. We are homo sapiens, and these qualities have always helped us adapt to climate changes. Today, they are a priceless legacy of experience. A second gift from the past, an abiding reminder that kin ties and the innate human capacity for cooperation are valuable assets, even in densely populated megacities. One must only look at ancient or modern Pueblo society in the American Southwest to realize that kinship, obligations to one another, and mechanisms that break down isolation remain an essential glue for human societies under stress. Today we can see those same relationships in various community groups, be they churches or clubs. Kin ties are one coping mechanism. So are the strategies of dispersal and mobility, which for thousands of years were highly adaptive ways of coping with drought or destruction wrought by sudden flooding. Mobility in the form of involuntary migration is still a significant human reaction to climate change. Witness the thousands of people fleeing drought in Northeast Africa or trying to move northward into the United States. 
Today we talk about ecological refugees. We are actually witnessing the ancient survival strategy of mobility on a truly massive scale. There's far more. The societies of the past lived in intimate association with their environments. They never had the benefit of scientific weather forecasting, let alone computer models or even one of the many proxies now at our disposal. Babylonians and others, including medieval astronomers, consulted the heavenly bodies without success. Until the 19th century, even the most expert climactic predictions involved local phenomena such as cloud formations or sudden temperature changes. Farmers and city dwellers alike relied on subtle environmental signposts acquired over many generations, such as the dense cloud formations that foreshadow approaching hurricanes. Similarly, fisher folk and mariners identified the subtle changes in ocean swells that arrived ahead of powerful storms. The experience of the past reminds us that adaptations to climate change are, more often than not, local initiatives based on local experience and understanding. Such adaptations, be they the building of a seawall, moving houses to higher ground, or a communal response in the face of a catastrophic flood, rely on local experience and environmental knowledge. Most ancient societies, whether small villages or cities, were well aware that they were at the mercy of climactic forces, not in control of them. Looking back over the millennia, we can distinguish general categories of climate change that challenged our forebears. Catastrophic events, such as exceptionally strong El Ninos along the Peruvian coast, or massive volcanic eruptions with their destructive ash clouds, which ruined crops, were short-lived but caused suffering and sometimes serious damage and loss of life. Yet once the event ended, normal climactic conditions returned and the victims recovered. The effects were usually short-term and soon done with, often within the span of a single lifetime. Recovery from such climactic punches required cooperation, close ties, and strong leadership, an enduring legacy from the past. In small-scale societies, leadership fell to kin leaders and elders, to individuals with experience and the kind of personal charisma that engendered loyalty. Much depended on reciprocal obligations between fellow kin and also on leaders' ability to control and manipulate food surpluses. Climactic events are different propositions from short-term climate shifts, a prolonged drought cycle, a rainy decade, or persistent flooding that decimates growing crops. Many subsistence farming societies of the past, like the Moche and Chimu of coastal Peru, were only too aware of the hazards of prolonged droughts. They relied on mountain runoff from the Andes to nourish carefully designed irrigation works in desert river valleys headed toward the Pacific. Both also depended on the rich coastal anchovy fisheries for much of their diet and on groundwater and carefully maintained irrigation canals to distribute water supplies in an environment where every drop counted. Their resilience depended on community-based stewardship of water systems supervised by powerful chiefs. It was no coincidence that the pre-industrial civilizations of the past 5,000 years thrived on social inequality as societies run for the benefit of the few. Everything depended on carefully acquired and maintained food surpluses for societies like ancient Egypt and the Khmer civilization in Southeast Asia, which fed both nobles and commoners with rations. Village farmers living and working close to the land could survive short droughts by relying on less popular crops or perhaps wild plant foods. There might be hunger, but life would go on. Prolonged dry cycles, like the celebrated mega drought of 2200 to 1900 BCE, often called the 4.2 KA event, 
which spread across the Mediterranean and South Asia, were another matter altogether. Confronted with this drought, the pharaohs were unable to feed their people. The book is Climate Chaos by uh, Brian Fagan and Nadia Durrani. Climate Chaos, uh, Lessons on Survival from Our Ancestors. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today? Your discussion of climate change and the effects of veganism. Yeah. I've actually been vegan for about two years now, but it was a pretty radical change for myself because I'd never heard of anything like that kind of plant-based diet. And now that I'm on it, I have to say that I do not think about my weight. I do not consider it as something that I have to stress about. The benefits of veganism as just a healthy anti-carcinogen has changed my life. Yeah, did your I weight used, stabilize or reduce as a consequence of becoming a vegan? Uh, reduced. It's been reduced about 20 pounds, and I also just rarely think about having to diet. I just don't. Yeah. I eat yeah. primarily plant-based foods and avoid all dairy and meat. You can find quite a bit more protein in vegetables than you can in meat anyhow per calorie. Mm. You know, some of those main ones are broccoli, hemp seeds, almonds, sure, tofu, etc. Things yeah. that are relatively boring to hear about, but yeah. if we were to start focusing more on local gardening. This is a consequential step toward fixing climate change. And Amanda, Louise and I just two weeks ago said, okay, that's it. I've mentioned before, we were vegetarians up until about 10 years ago, and then we started eating uh -huh. fish once a month. And we have stopped mm -hmm. eating fish. We have stopped eating any dairy products at all. We are yeah. officially hardcore vegans, although I'm still wearing leather shoes, but I this too shall pass. It's the third leading cause of climate change gases is industrial agriculture, Amanda. Yeah, I, and the more I read up on facts, 50% of the water use around the world goes to agriculture, livestock, livestock right. feed, along those lines, and Instagram or other social media outlets. If you go in there, it, there's such a thriving community of activists. Yeah, and, and living in Portland, I don't know if you've ever been to Blossoming Lotus. For, Louise and I were there Friday for lunch. There are a bunch of vegan restaurants in this town, by and by, that are just spectacular. And they're entirely, I mean, literally everything on the menu is vegan. Amanda, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And great points all, very well made. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? I tell you, I'm really afraid about methane gas. And methane gas is the component in the air that keeps oxygen from getting above 24.6%. Uh, no, not so true, Paul. Methane doesn't yeah. compete with oxygen for space it, and the atmosphere. Our atmosphere is about in the air. No, our atmosphere is about twenty percent oxygen, and it's like point zero 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 one percent methane. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. That's where methane is dangerous to us. It's not dangerous to us in that it is displacing oxygen. Methane is, I think, it's CH four, right? One carbon for hydrogens. So yeah, as it's being oxidized, it would convert free oxygen, or actually oxygen ions, it would convert that into water vapor. So it would consume oxygen, yeah. But again, the methane is point, you know, zero, zero, zero something. The danger of methane is that it is a radically more effective greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. That's the danger of methane. Patricia in Portage, Wisconsin, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Patricia, what's on your mind today? 
okay. I'm usually calling about trying to end slaughterhouses and help animals, but mm-hmm. this um, virus came out of um, the wildlife markets in China. Correct. And that means it came out of a mammal, and it has jumped the species barrier to humans. Why can't it jump the human species barrier back to cows, pigs, chickens, and feedlots, or... Um, it may be able to, Patricia. I mean, this, uh, you know, flu is carried by birds and by pigs. And in fact, the, 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 the flu break outbreak of 1919 came out of a pig farm in Kansas, as best we can tell. So, you know, it's, it's not impossible that this virus could move back and forth between humans and other animals. Yeah, imagine if it goes to a feedlot, nose to nose, they're all over the place, you know, crammed yeah. in, and right. then they go through and they're mashed into hamburgers by the thousands of animals per hamburger, and it goes out to the public. I mean, well, I think by then, the, by then, you know, if, I mean, we cook meat, you know, and we disinfect meat and things. I, you know, I don't, okay. I don't see that as much of a problem, but you know, the possibility that it might mutate into a more virulent form inside of our, you know, I mean, I, I'm with you, Patricia. I think that our, our commercial uh, factory farming, in quotes, of animals is, is brutal and, and is a public health menace. And, right. and when you add the, the high levels of antibiotics that are being given to these animals, I mean, we know, for example, you know, the uh, H, I think it's H157 form of E. coli, the, the, the fecal bacteria, um, that that kills people, you know, shuts down their kidneys. You know mm-hmm. that that came out of feedlots. That came out of in you know industrial animal agriculture. It literally didn't exist before the 1980s, or maybe the 1970s. Um, you know, we, we used to, people used to eat steak tartare, and they used to put raw eggs in, in you know in with their orange juice and put it in the blender in the morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, my 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 wife's husband, uh, father, uh, my my father-in-law, uh, who has now passed away, but. You know, he, he used to do both those things. His, his, you know, he'd, he'd put an egg in his, in his orange juice every morning. You can't do that anymore because, because now you've got, you've got these pathogens that have, that have uh, you know, been subjected to uh, antibiotics over and over and over and over again in these feedlots and have developed not only antibiotic resistance but also have become more, more uh, destructive. So we, we've, we've already seen this, and we really well, need to be reconsidering this. You know, sometimes it, it, the, the um, manure of these animals goes on to lettuce and other things that aren't sure. cooked. Yeah, and this is this so, is this is one of the ways that we end up with these, you know, with these uh, E. coli and Salmonella infections in our in our food, in our vegetables. You know, the well, yeah, it concerns absolutely. me about the coronavirus because it came out of mammals. Mm-hmm. Other mammals, and you know, I I just wonder, you know, if some guy out in a feedlot passes it on to a cow, <laughs> it's yeah. like nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my, my concern up. there would be that it mutates in in ways. I mean, you know, again, we're building the case, I think, Patricia, to have a national healthcare system. I'm you know? all with you. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie, go Bernie. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And to eat a whole heck of a lot fewer animal products. I mean, you know, if we all dialed back on eating animal products, most of the history of the human race, animal products were not central to diet. They were they were basically you know, spices, essentially. If we were to do that, we would save a lot of lives. We would, you know, animals' lives, and we would save a lot of human lives.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 